Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week as ever in the studio, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Luke Gittos, Spike columnist. Hello. Coming up on today's show, how the Alkali attacker gained asylum to the UK, the exploitation of the Brianna Jai tragedy, and Labour's embrace of woke anti-racism. Now, if you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel and click the bell. Not only will you not miss any episode that way, you'll also be really helping out the channel. So the manhunt for Abdul Azidi, the suspect in last week's horrific alkali attack in Clapham, South London, is still ongoing as we're recording this. Tom, um, a lot of questions has been raised as to how the hell this man managed to stay in the country. He is a convicted sex offender. He had been rejected for asylum twice. And yet still here he was able to commit this horrific crime. No, completely. And I know that this week, a lot of the focus has been on the fact that he converted to Christianity. Um, it didn't take long for people to work out that that probably wasn't as clear cut as it seemed. Um, but as you say, even without that, there's this catalogue of failures. Why someone can be approved for an asylum claim after having been convicted of two sexual offences mm. in this country, I think beggars belief. Um, I don't think it matters how pro or anti-asylum you are. I don't see any argument, any sane argument, certainly, yeah. for thinking that that person deserves shelter and support in this country. But it's been fascinating how politicians and commentators have struggled to make that really simple, commonsensical point. Like it's, it's, and we saw so many different examples of this. So it started off on, I believe it was the Thursday evening last week when it first started to emerge about his asylum history and the fact he'd been convicted of sexual offences. You saw Caroline Noakes, the alleged Tory MP, and Bell Ribeiro Addy, the Labour MP, whose constituency this horrific attack took place in. And they both were essentially invited to dismiss the fact that this was about asylum. Yeah. And then they started to talk about microaggressions, which is the, the, the mind boggles, the, the desire to deflect away from what is the fundamental issue here, mm. the thing that could have stopped him really from committing this horrendous attack. And also, the, the uh, I think it's probably flattering it too much to call it a thought process, but the, why, why would people have that difficulty? Yeah. People seem to think that to suggest that there should be any limit any kind of commonsensical limit to asylum policy, even if it's people who quite clearly mean society ill, is somehow mean anti-migrant is mm. absolutely bizarre. And I think it underlines something that we've been talking about for a long time, which is how unvirtuous and morally vacuous like the virtue signalers are. It can lead someone like Caroline Noakes or Bell Ribeiro Addy or even Gillian Keegan, a front bencher, to pretend yeah. that this isn't really about asylum. Um, and to effectively say that it was right that this alkali-throwing lunatic was allowed to stay here and to commit this horrendous attack. And particularly, the idea that this is any way kind of anti-migrant or touchy or something uncomfortable is particularly bizarre when you think about some of the facts that we are emerging about this mm -hmm. case, one of which is that his victim, his victims, appear to have been staying in a refugee hotel. So they, they could very plausibly also be people who are coming here to seek shelter, to find a better life. But because of our inability to deal with people who really don't deserve asylum, yeah. they were subject to this horrendous life-changing attack. So it's, um, I wish I could say that this is, we didn't really expect this kind of response, but the fact that it was just so incredibly stupid mm. as much as anything else was, um, 
I'm not sure we've seen the likes of this so far in terms of this discussion. Yeah, I mean, Luke, you, you don't have to think that you should pull up the drawbridge to be a little bit discerning about some of the people who are granted asylum. I mean, clearly this <clears throat> does no favours to the many deserving people. Yeah, absolutely. So in Azadi's case, uh, there is some information to suggest that the reason he wasn't immediately deported was that he served what's called a suspended sentence, meaning he didn't actually go into custody. He served a prison sentence, but he served it within the community. Mm. So a suspended sentence means you've got a prison sentence, but you can serve it outside of prison. Now, it seems extraordinary that that would mean that he wasn't eventually deported because we do, with respect to uh, offenders in this country, foreign national offenders, we do have some quite strict rules. The government has a lot of power to summarily deport them. And, and it's it's very easy to, I mean, it's relatively easy to do. It's re relatively straightforward, but it can be held up. And I think the, I think we are seeing over the last sort of six months, 12 months with the uh, unfolding catastrophe around the R Rwanda plan, mm. the kind of maze of law that exists in this area, you know, the way that people can effectively game the system. You know, we've heard about the purportedly false conversions to Christianity. We've heard about um, foreign nationals relying on, you know, appeals to their human rights, their right to a private life, who, who then go on to commit some very serious offences. I was looking at some examples today of foreign nationals who have committed extremely serious offences in this country, remained here, and then gone on to commit things like murder, sexual abuse, all sorts of things. And this, this is not to, you know, what I think this illustrates is that our asylum system is broken in a, in a number of different ways. And one of them is that we are not able to distinguish between meritorious cases and cases that should never, yeah. sh should never be granted. And if we can't make even that basic distinction, then we have no hope of building a, a, a humane asylum system. I mean, Tom's right. This, this, this individual who has committed crime after crime and now has committed a, you know, an unimaginable criminal offence has taken the place of someone who is more deserving. We should always remember that. Yeah. That our system needs to identify the meritorious cases because otherwise we're going to be in a mess. Mm. And Tom, um, I just want to return to this, uh, the role of the church mm. uh, in all of this. I mean, it's this is not the first time a, purport a purportedly fake conversion has played a role in an asylum claim. You think of um, Emad al Swilman was probably the most famous case. He was uh, converted to Christianity um, when his home was raided. It seemed he had an Islamic prayer mat and things mm. like that. He was the man who tried to blow up the Liverpool maternity hospital. Um, the church seems to be in complete denial that there is even an issue here. Now, it is interesting as well because of the fact that as some of the reporting is unearthed, there has been policies in place which have not only encouraged them to be you know, very supportive of people who want to convert to Christianity. I mean, that's something that you would expect yeah. <laughs> any religious leader to engage in. But to actually, first of all, to get involved in some of their asylum cases. There's been people who have actually been advocating on behalf of people in the grand scheme of things they're not necessarily going to know very well. Um, but there's also this fascinating document which has been knocking around for a number of years now. Church of England document, which were even made reference to the kind of xenophobic climate that had mm. been created post-Brexit, that they shouldn't reflexively disbelieve asylum claimants when they say that they want to convert to Christianity. No one's asking them to do that. Yeah. But I think that at least betrays the kind of politicised nature, the way in which the Church of England in particular has kind of become like the Lib Dems at prayer. Yeah. It's really curious, and there's no doubt fed into a level of credulity on their part. I mean, I don't want to lay the problems of the asylum system at the door of the church. You know, it's not their responsibility yeah. fundamentally. But when you see people saying that, you know, there's 40 asylum seekers who are all suddenly claim, 
claiming that they want to convert to Christianity and then just assuming that they're all on the up and up. I mean, this stuff just stretches credibility and yeah. common sense, doesn't it? Um, but as I say, that's not. I suppose that's not really where the fundamental issues lie. And just just to go back to a point that Luke was making there. I think not only if we can't distinguish between cases does the whole sort of system break down, but also I think any public support for something like a generous asylum policy yeah. will break down. I mean, the string of cases we've seen in recent weeks, not even months or years. So on top of Abdul Azadi, we've seen the case of the unnamed um, Sudanese ISIS propagandist who was granted not only leave to remain, but also lifelong anonymity yeah. in this country. There was also the case of the Albanian crime lord who mm. has recently been granted um, stay in this country as a consequence of his right to a family life. Um, and if a generous asylum policy comes to be associated with giving gangsters and terrorists and acid attackers shelter, yeah. then we've got no hope of maintaining public support for it whatsoever. And I find it fascinating that people who claim to be in favour of a generous asylum policy don't want to get these barnacles off the boat, as it were. Yeah. It should be obvious yeah. that this is something that's important. But again, just because of a fear of appearing a certain mm. way or a fear of not looking 100% pro-asylum in every single situation, they find themselves staring at their shoelaces after an acid attack. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the only other thing to remember is that we shouldn't fall into the trap of believing that our asylum system is only incredibly lax. I mean, it's worth remembering that a lot of very meritorious claims get re rejected and people yeah. get deported when they really should be granted a right to stay here. And the reason why the cases, these cases arise is because people are savvy enough to game the system. Mm. You're only savvy enough to game the system if you have access to a lawyer. And, you know, there has been uh, research by my own, by our regulator, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, saying about how there are immigration solicitors who are gaming the system on behalf of clients. It's an appalling service, but it's one that people are willing to, to engage with. And so that's, that's, that's the great injustice of this, is mm. that it's, you, have all these, you have lots of people who get unjustly refused and a lot of people who get unjustly granted. And that's because people are able to game the system that we've created. And of course, it's such now, as we saw with the discussion around Rwanda, it's now, we have such a long history of law that's built up over decades and decades that we really need a political party who's willing to take this issue on, to go back over the international treaties, the domestic law that we've created, to try and unpick it, to try and understand whether it's fit for purpose, to yeah. try and understand whether it gives rise to the kind of asylum system that we want. But it doesn't seem that any major party wants to do that at the moment. Definitely. Here at Spikes, we know that your privacy is priceless. But what you may not know is that on the internet, your personal information is often vulnerable. Using secure Wi-Fi at hotels, cafes and airports exposes your private details to everyone. And even the most amateur hacker with the right software can breach your secure home connection. These hackers can make thousands selling your data on the dark web, and more of them pop up every day. To protect my data from these threats, I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN helps you stay safe on the internet by encrypting all of your personal info using a secure tunnel. This puts a digital brick wall between you and all the nasty characters eyeing up your details. Even with a top shelf supercomputer, it would take the best hacker a billion years to breach ExpressVPN's encryption. Don't let all this technical talk fool you either. ExpressVPN is refreshingly simple to use. All you have to do is set up the app, tap the encryption button, and you're all set. Also, ExpressVPN works on all devices. So whether you're working from home or out and about, ExpressVPN will always wipe away your digital footprint. The thing I appreciate most about ExpressVPN is that it keeps all of my financial information locked away, taking out all of the worry from online banking and shopping. 
So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash spiked. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked. And you can get an extra three months for free. Expressvpn.com slash spiked. So Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is facing calls to apologise after making references to one of Keir Starmer's U-turns. Um, Keir Starmer famously has, can't decide um, what a woman is, and he made a jibe about that in Prime Minister's questions this week. Um, ostensibly, this has caused a row because Esther Jai, the mother of murdered teenager Brianna Jai, was in Parliament at the time. And so people sort of saying, you know, it's a disgraceful thing to have said uh, in her presence, effectively. Tom, this round does seem a little bit, dare I say it, manufactured, a bit over the top. It's manufactured. I think it's really unseemly as well, mm. to be honest with you, because I was shocked by what happened in Parliament this week at Prime Minister's Questions, but I was shocked by what Keir Starmer did. Rishi Sunak was not trying to weaponize the case of Brianna Jai to make some sort of point about gender ideology. He was just making a point about Keir Starmer's U-turns on the question of gender ideology. And it was Keir Starmer spied an opportunity mm. to effectively use a dead body as a soapbox and he took it. That's what happened. Um, and I find it really unpleasant, but part of a kind of growing trend that we see, which is a willingness to exploit tragedies to basically bring to heel people that um, certain people in politics disagree with yeah. or have been having rows with about certain issues. So you see it with the gender issue. Um, I'm sure Luke will go into a bit of the Brianna Jai case mm -hmm. and the the claims around was transphobia a motivation for this particular murder, which aren't as straightforward, I understand it, as, as it seems. Um, but even that being said, the idea that this horrendous murder takes place and that therefore that proves that Julie Bindle should shut up yeah. is a grotesque argument to make. The idea that because two incredibly depraved, violent teenagers committed this horrendous murder that therefore all of the feminists and women's rights activists who have been speaking up and taking a lot of flack for defending women's spaces children safeguarding and so on that they just need to shut up now and go home and mm -hmm. you know we've won the argument off the back of this horrendous attack it's so unseemly unpleasant but i, I don't think people it's because it's so become the kind of common coin of that part of politics, that yeah. they don't even recognise that they're doing it. And that's also quite disturbing in and of itself. I think. Yeah, because I mean, there's this echoes almost with the Joe Cox tragedy in a, in a sense, wouldn't you say, like, mm. you know, people were using that even to criticise people for being get, too excited about Brexit. No, exactly. And it's not to say that when some sort of horrendous terrorist attack, assassination, murder takes place, that people shouldn't be animated about it, that mm. they shouldn't want to talk about it. Um, but Joe Cox was another example where that wasn't people weren't getting upset because they were worried about the threat posed by the far right because it was a far right nut job in that case who committed that horrendous murder. Um, it became an excuse to have a go at Nigel Farage. It yeah. became an excuse to have a go at the Vote Leave campaign um, in much the same way of, as we've seen with the Brianna Jai, um, the Brianna Jai tragedy. And I just don't re think people realise what a disgusting and grotesque tactic this is. Mm. But as I say, it's just become incredibly common. This desire to use, as I say, like dead bodies as soapboxes, people have to recognise what it is that they're doing when they engage in that. Yeah, um, It's such low politics. It's much lower than anything Rishi Sunak is accused of engaging in in a bit of punch and Judy PMQs. But um, as I say, it's just something that we keep having to run into, it feels like. And, and Luke, I mean, you've been looking a bit at the case itself. I mean, it's often said, to be honest, from day one, as soon as the murder hit the news, we were told that this was about transphobia. Mm. Um, is that really a fair 
assessment of this case? No, certainly not. I mean, I think we've learned that there is no case as as there, there's no case as complex, as morally involved, as evidentially. Um, this was a very, very difficult case, incredibly difficult. Two apparently very vulnerable children uh, who committed the crime. One of whom was on the autistic spectrum, had developed uh, selective mutism in the course of the trial. Clearly a, a very unusual power dynamic between the two killers, where uh, it looks as though one was playing far greater a role in the course of the offense, but also in the influencing <laughs> of the other. So you have this incredibly complex and difficult dynamic to understand. And before we do any effort to understand it, and, or, or to pick it apart. There's a rush to call it transphobia or to fit it, I mean, to fit it into a narrative. Yeah. And what I think we've learned is that there is now no case that's insufficiently complex mm. that, that, that they won't do this with, that people won't jump on to try and fit into a particular political narrative. And I do find it absolutely revolting and inhumane mm. because I think w when you do that, you rob this case of all its ethical complexity. You rob it of all its... Uh, kind of of any questions around how this could have possibly happened. I mean, that is the question we should be still asking as societies. Yeah. How did this happen? How can two teenage kids become obsessed with murder to the point they end up killing another kid? That is always an incident which should probe a society to to, to be introspective. Mm. Um, but the idea that we would immediately try and fit it into one particular box is is. I just think it's unconscionable. I think yeah. it's absolutely unconscionable. Just to mention, you know, the judge in this case made a very tight decision about whether transphobia was a motivating factor. And it's unusual because um, the prosecutor had maintained throughout the trial that transphobia wasn't really a motive at all. There was evidence to, to, to suggest that one of the killers, that the young girl expressed a great deal of admiration for Brianna Jai. Um, it seems that the judge has formed the conclusion based on some messages sent by Eddie Radcliffe, the young male killer, uh, questioning, uh, you know, asking questions about what, I mean, awfully, what Brianna would sound like uh, when she died or when she's awful messaging and some other crude messages about, um, you know, her genitals and things like that. So all of that, the judge had to had to factor in and consider and weigh up. And of course, we're not in the courtroom. You know, us lawyers love to say, look, we're not in the courtroom. We can't take the place of the judge in this decision. And it was a difficult one, et cetera. And she was best placed to decide it. But it does seem as though some key decisions in this case have been taken on the basis of very little evidence. Mm -hmm. And I think I can go so far as to say, I think other judges may have not decided that transphobia was a factor. Um, given the evidence. I think it could have definitely gone either way. And I think yeah. there's lots of judges which would decide the other way. So in, in in that regard, that makes this even, it makes it even more appalling that suddenly this, this case has almost independent of the evidence become a vehicle for the discussion around transphobia mm. and around, and I just think if you take the issue of transphobia seriously, if you take, you know, if you if you take trans rights seriously, if you take our debate around criminal justice seriously, then you really need to separate out these two things yeah. because this was a very distinct, unique, almost you know, unique crime. And we need to discuss it on its own terms, not use it as some kind of vehicle for political debate. And, and Tom, I mean, you know, pretty much from the outset, the message from the trans rights activists was essentially that JK Rowling or someone like mm. that killed Brianna Jai. 
no complete. I mean, when the police actually originally, quite early on in the investigation, suggested that they weren't looking at transphobia as a sort of motivating factor, um, some of these people look almost like visibly upset about that mm. fact. Um, even before any of the sort of dust had settled and any of the facts had really emerged, there was this desperation to blame it, as you say, on J.K. Rowling. Um, and you just got to think about the psychology of someone who sees a singular horrific murder like this and thinks, brilliant. Yeah. I can use it to have a pop at J.K. Rowling or my force that's it, whoever it is. The psychology of that is really actually quite unsettling, I think. And it's this sort of, we see it trotted out time and again, but this kind of, these tropes of certain people in politics, whether it's people on the Brexit side of politics or it's people on the anti-woke side of politics or people on the gender critical side of politics, you'll see these phrases like they're whipping up hatred. Yeah. They're whipping up anger. They're whipping up a culture war about X, Y, Z. And this, this is kind of idea that because a few people have shown up and said, you know what, um, there is such a thing as biological sex. Or, and you know what, women do need single sex spaces. And you know what, we shouldn't put rapists in women's prisons. That as a consequence of that, they are, they are kind of contributing to an atmosphere which will at some point or the other lead to someone losing their life. It's, mm. it's not only an argument it's impossible to rebut because it's just purely based on faith and you know, yeah. assertion. Um, but it's also fundamentally censorious. It's, mm. it's to say that people who have no connection to this crime whatsoever, that they've got blood on their hands. And I think people should cut it out. But um, I think the problem is people feel incredibly moral when they make, this, yeah. when, when they make these kinds of arguments, when I think it's, it's the most immoral thing that you can possibly do, which is to see something like this and almost get excited about that prospect because you can use it to land blows against your political enemies. Mm. Um, we need to cut that out. But, you know, across so many issues, we're seeing people just engage in that all the time these days. So Labour has announced um, some new proposals to revamp discrimination law. It says it's going to make it illegal to discriminate against people for racism in the workplace, um, especially around certain pay claims. Now, Tom, obviously a lot of point, people have pointed out that this is already illegal. So is Labour trying to smuggle something else in under the <laughs> under this rubric? It's a little make bit... it make sense, please. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I mean, because so, the headlines will say, you know, they're going to introduce um, proper sort of equal pay for ethnic minorities. And, and then, you know, Kemi Badenoch, the Equalities Minister, quite rightly said, obviously it's already illegal to pay people differently on the basis of their ethnicity. What this does, without wanting to get too much into the weeds of it, because also what's being proposed, it hasn't been published, there's mm. not been a lot of detail presented to the public, um, and also there's a lot in it from what the reporting is, but the, the fundamental thing is that they want to bring equal pay protections in line with ethnicity, equal pay protections and disability, incidentally, in line with gender. But it's not just about equal pay, it's about what's called equal pay for what's called equal work, which mm. has led to a lot of quite vexing cases. Birmingham City Council has kind of bankrupted itself effectively because... Women who were working as, say, um, teaching assistants weren't receiving bonuses, but people who were working as street sweepers were receiving bonuses, and that's presented as... So you can kind of see what this is not as clear-cut as some people would understand equal pay to mean, which would yeah. be two people of two different demographics doing the same job and being paid differently. Mm. So it's it's introducing that, um, which is something which... Um, you know, it's not it's not a straightforwardly equalities issue um, and can easily just become, as not said, a kind of bonanza for lawyers and yeah. not much else. But there's also a lot more in it. They want to introduce mandatory pay gap reporting on the basis of ethnicity, which again has existed for gender so far. Again, it's one of those things which seems likely to do nothing other than just sort of stoke resentment because mm. of the fact that if you introduce these kind of crude pay reporting measures as we've done for gender and you don't 
control for you know the age of the people that you're employing and the different levels of seniority and whatever you yeah. can create this giant disparity yeah. which doesn't actually reflect paying men and women or black people and white people different amounts of money so that's not necessarily good but there's all sorts of other things in there as well they're talking about wanting to review the curriculum mm. you know it seems like a kind of there's a decolonize the curriculum aspect to all of this um there's a lot of discussion about health disparities and whatever so it feels like it's um all of the the frankly the kind of disparity always equals discrimination, BLM talking points being yeah. wrapped up into one piece of legislation. So I think what we're, what we're seeing here, even though we haven't got much detail so far, is really the kind of institutionalization of woke racial politics. That's yeah. what this bill seems like it's going to represent. And I think it's telling that um, even that's not been enough for a lot of the activists <laughs> who are already decrying it before it's even been published. It's yeah. not going far enough. So it's another reminder, I think, of the fact that whilst Keir Starmer is looks incredibly boring and is incredibly boring sort of technocratic unprincipled kind of fellow not unlike biden in the u.s when it comes to these issues mm. he's very willing to just defer to what the woke anti-racists are saying and willing to just kind of rubber stamp it and implement it so it's, an, it's another reminder of even though we, we're reminded on a daily basis how dreadful the tory party is yeah it, it's going to get a hell of a lot worse certainly where these social issues are concerned <laughs> And look, of course, if you challenge any of this stuff, you'll be accused of waging a culture war. Possibly mm. you're racist as well. You know, why would you why would you question what these activists want, essentially? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that, as I understand it, the key proposal is to withdraw the need to prove direct discrimination, which at the moment is a requirement for bringing a claim under the Equality Act. You have to prove that you are directly discriminated against in some capacity. So maybe there is some... Um, there, there is some scope for bringing race in line with with other areas where equal pay is is a legal requirement. Um, but I think Tom's right in that inevitably this will create, you, you know, it's the baggage that that brings that it that it brings with it. Mm. This is not going to be a simple um, legal reform. And I think you're right that speaking up against these things can make you sound as though you're against people being paid the same, irrespective of their skin color, which of course is completely ridiculous. What I think people who in, who get involved in this area often ignore is that when you create a new law like this, it creates real potential for tension, for mm. litigation. It creates real tension within the workplace because uh, all these kind of unhelpful dynamics can arise as a result of the law being there and, and creating new uh, ways through which people can accuse each other of things. So generally, um, the introduction of more laws into situations like this help nothing mm. and can make things a lot worse. So I think it's really important that we separate out being able to critique a particular legal reform uh, and critique the, the kind of baggage that it brings along with it, uh, whilst also recognizing that obviously, as, as, as Tom suggested, you know, people should not be discriminated against because of the color of their skin. Yeah. And, you know, Tom, obviously, Starmer likes to present himself as middle of the road uh, on these things. But as you suggested before, you know, it's just... It can only really get worse. Mm -hmm. But then again, you know, what are the Tories doing to s stop it? Well, no, precisely. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> they've gone from, I mean, it's kind of interesting. The Tories already feel like they're kind of carping from the sidelines about these issues, even though they're actually in government. Mm. <laughs> so that's, you know, we're set for more of that when Labour comes to power, of course. Um, I think it's just really important that we really challenge this sort of disparity equals discrimination yeah. sort of discourse. First of all, because I don't think it really stacks up and I don't think it really gets us anywhere. So like with the example of, you know, if you've got one group of people, whether they be women or a particular ethnic minority or whatever, um, and they happen to work in a certain 
department of a council, which for whatever reason hasn't received a bonus, whereas the street sweepers have. I imagine because of the fact that it's a bit harder to recruit street sweepers and therefore yeah. you need some more incentives. Is that decision down to some form of sexist or racist discrimination? Probably not. Is Should those women also get a pay rise or bonuses or whatever? I'm certainly up for that. But rather than it being a kind of question of your free choice or collective bargaining, yeah. it suddenly becomes something that has to be settled in the courts, something mm. that has to be had out by lawyers rather than something that is about you know the cut and thrust of workers' rights and paying conditions and so on. Um, but also because of the fact that it just invites us to, um, to constantly kind of stoke up senses of division and yeah. tensions, often mm. on the basis of not very much. Mm. I mean, also because of the fact that we, you know, there is this sort of new mantra that disparity equals discrimination, but of course it doesn't always cut the same way. The fact that, you know, by educational attainment, white working class boys, those on free school meals are sort of the bottom of the pile if you exclude traveler and Roma children. Yeah. Um, that's it's excluded from the mix. Mm. Um, the fact that if you look at the sort of rough figures, you know, um, British Chinese or British Indians, are the highest earners if you break it down by ethnicity. I mean, if this yeah. is systemic racism, then it's it's incredibly sophisticated. It's kind of yeah. picking winners and losers almost to throw us off the scent somewhat. Mm. And I think the one thing that it completely undermines, which is why it's very telling and significant that you've got a Labour Party very much embracing this, is because of the fact that, again, it completely elides class as yeah. a fundamental distinction here. I mean, we can go blue in the face trading statistics about what group is more likely to earn a certain amount or to end up in social housing or to face certain health problems more than the rest of the population. One thing they're almost certainly going to have in common is that they're even poorer working class. That's yeah. something which cuts across all of those other divides. And often a lot of these disparities when you control for age or geography or background or whatever, a lot of these gaps tend to shrink to almost nothing anyway. And I just find it really interesting that um, it's become so fundamental now to any not just left wing but left of center politics to obsess over these issues but ignore the the, the fundamental one which mm. is the question of social class and that level of inequality i mean it's, it's worth remembering that there is no pay gap on the minimum wage but this yeah. seems to be something which completely eludes them and obviously there's a, there's so much diversity if you like within specific populations in terms of how much they earn and therefore what um social inequities or what problems they tend to confront in life uh, the fact that that's become not just quite a sort of radical proposition to bring that up, but it's actually something that gets you shouted down, gets you accused yeah. of being some sort of class reductionist, gets you accused of being obsessed about the white working class to the exclusion of all others when that's not when, what anyone is saying in this debate, I think is really telling about how identity politics has just completely crowded out yeah. class politics now, even in the supposed party of the working classes. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.